Welcome to this special installment of the Trek Time podcast. Today, this is the second part of a three-part series called Integrating Precision Analysis with Crop Input Applications. This series is brought to you by Apical Crop Science, a company dedicated to helping farmers reach maximum crop quality and yields within organic and regenerative production standards. Through data-driven laboratory methods, Apical delivers enterprise-grade solutions and systems that are precise, cost-effective, and eco-friendly. Apical Crop Science, a new paradigm of crop nutrition. Learn more at apical-ag.com. That's apical-ag.com. I'm your host, Paul Meyer, editor of Acres USA magazine, and today we're talking about soil analysis with David Knaus, founder and president of Apical Crop Science. Welcome, David. Thanks, Paul. Great to see you again. Good, thanks. Yep, looking forward to this. So today we're going to be diving into the topic of soil analysis and why this is so critical to the main theme of this series of integrating precision analysis with crop input applications. Much has been researched and written about and discussed on the importance of analyzing soil. David, what are some of the most misunderstood aspects of soil analysis? And what do farmers need to get right for them to have success with this? Yeah, thanks for the question, Paul. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to address the topic today. Um, so what I would say is with the, as far as what's most misunderstood about soil analysis is that a soil test isn't a soil test isn't a soil test. And what I mean by that is that there's many different types of soil analysis out there. There's many different types of soil out there and they might not match what your goals are oftentimes. So backing up a second, there's a methodology within soil analysis that has existed for approximately 70 or 70 to 80 years. And a lot of those methods within soil analysis may not match up with the grower's goals, the grower's growing methods, or the actual availability of the nutrients to the plants in season. And what we've found through some of the work that we've done at Apical and I've done with academics previously was that it takes a diverse analysis protocols of soil analysis to unlock really what's happening in a soil. And the reason for this is that we have probably started off on the wrong foot, generally speaking, with soil analysis as a country. I don't know what they do in other countries, but my fundamental assertion at Apical and have spoken very vocally, and I think actually even in one of our previous interviews about this uh, in the mag for, the, uh, for the print magazine, was that car soil carbon was generally forgotten when soil analysis was developed. And okay, a, a lot of people might disagree and say, well, you know, we look at organic matter and I would say, yeah, that is true. But what we're doing is only looking at organic matter. And so we're lumping carbon into this really sort of nondescript group of analysis and actually missing the whole point of what carbon is doing, how carbon is being cycled within plants, how it's buffering nutrients, how it's making them more available, how it's increasing CEC or decreasing CEC depending on its availability. So in order to get soil analysis right, 
you have to understand carbon and that carbon has to be analyzed and included on your soil testing. So I would encourage growers that are looking to get soil analysis in a more precision way to understand the different fractions of carbon and how those cycle and how those are made available to the plant. Yeah, that's certainly a departure from the norm for soil scientists, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Yeah, 180 degrees. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, that's our uh, cross to bear at Apical is that we have departed from uh, normal analysis by digging into the plant first and starting to work our way back through soil functions. So as a lot of people know, we started out with plant sap analysis, which I think we'll talk about later in the series, but we have worked our way back through from sap analysis through to the soil to understand how soils actually are working and providing available nutrients in season. And so, yeah, it is a departure from the norm. It's not what people commonly refer to when they talk about soil analysis, but at the end of the day, plants are carbon processors, right? And they're processed carbon in even much greater amounts than any of the major macronutrients that are discussed. And plants are equipped with abilities to process, combine, split apart, distribute, manage carbon in a variety of different ways in its own system, in the rhizosphere, in the atmosphere around the plants, and so forth. And so that management process is a huge it's over 90% of what plants are actually doing. And so we feel that if we're not actually looking at how the plants are cycling carbon from the soil into the plant or and back, then we're missing the point. And because a lot of the other availability of different nutrients and different soil analysis methods depends on carbon in its various fractions and how those, car how those fractions of carbon are made available. So, yeah, and what does this have to do with how you specifically analyze soil like what does that make the process how does that make the process look different right yeah and that's a really great question and so a lot of the soil analysis is that you would find on the typical marketplace would look at an acid extractable nutrient value from a malic 3 analysis extraction or a modified morgan or morgan soil analysis or malic 1 or various forms of acid extractable nutrients we see that when you start to look at water-soluble nutrients or actually what's in the plant through sap analysis, that there's a tremendous amount of those reactions that include carbon. And if carbon is forgotten in this process, we generally are missing, missing out on how those nutrients are being made available. And so when we look at a soil analysis methods, such as what we run at Apical, where we, where we do multiple different extraction protocols on the same soil analysis or same soil sample, what we find is that when a water soluble fraction of soil may have tremendous nutrient availability, but they're all competing for and jockeying for position. But when we add carbon to that system, all of that competition starts to starts to relax and then and various nutrients become uh, less available and allowing the plant to pick and choose and develop selective root uptake to select i actually need this nutrient or that other nutrient not what is actually dominating from a chemical perspective so it's this fundamental shift from force feeding to selective nutrient uptake 
which is allowing growers to basically break the shackles of modern nutrient applications and modern nutrient fertilization protocols. And through that um, breaking of those chains allows them to achieve greater results, to reduce budgets and all these other uh, uh, you know, specialty functions can be unlocked from soils. What does that look like to add carbon in for a water analysis? Yeah, so um, what we have is, so like at Apico, we do, uh, we do three different carbon analysis. We analyze bicarbonates, unavailable carbon. We analyze active carbon, which soil microbes are, are making available. And then we analyze the loss on ignition, the available pool of carbon to make active, right? So from crop residues and so forth. Each one of those would be affected by soil nutrition in its own way. In other words, you can make non-available carbon available through acidification or enzyme application or microbial augmentation. You can make you know, crop residue carbon, you know, what we refer to as loss on ignition carbon, available through microbial digestion or nitrogen applications. But the soluble carbon that the plant needs to survive and create its own processes and biological uh, DNA structures, roughly speak, generally speaking, that carbon either has to come from the environment or from, or from the soil in a soluble form. That carbon has to be included in the plant's nutrient uptake. If it's not, the plant has to intake it from the environment. And if, if it can't, then the plant goes out of balance. This fundamental shift and how that interacts with the plants on a growing day-to-day -day basis it invalidates a tremendous number of the other soil analysis methods and assumptions. And so this is what we've seen through a very, very deep dive over the past 10 years of multiple different soil analysis methods, plant analysis methods, and so on and so forth, leaf sap and so, and so on and so forth, is that the plants want to do selective root uptake, but through modern agronomic practices are being force-fed to feed X, Y, and Z. When we add carbon to the system, we introduce the plant's ability to make its own decisions. And by doing so, the plants are able to achieve greater function on their own by making their own decisions than they can through our force feeding. Most of the time, there's some guys that are really good. Maybe you already answered this, but why are these different fractions of carbon so important? Generally speaking, they buffer the complex reactions of soil. And what that does is it modifies fertilizer inputs, provides ecosystem services, micro, microbial nutrient cycling, and overall helps to manage crop stress. When crops are non-stressed, have selective root uptake, have high levels of nutrient availability, but low levels of forced nutritional availability, so that's a significant distinction, they achieve the best yields and tonnage. Um, we've seen it over and over and over when crops have higher degrees of carbon, higher degree, lower degrees of toxins, they, they achieve better function, better economic returns, and better nutritional value in the form of mineral content and so forth. What is humus and does it exist? I've heard some people uh, talking recently on some podcasts about humus and, you know, there's some scientific debate, I guess, on whether 
uh, it's even something that we should talk about as existing. But um, if it does, what what exactly is it doing? If it's this stable carbon that is there in the soil, if it's so stable, how is it useful for plants? <laughs> you know, I'm really glad you brought this question into the conversation today, Paul, because uh, I'm probably going to get uh, thrown under the bus for saying this, but um, I would sort of, again, depart from the herd here and say that stable humus is not as stable as one might think. There's carbon, and carbon exists in various fractions and forms, but people have tried to analyze humus for the last 50 years and, and, and try to you know pin it into a corner and say, this is what humus is. But what humus, generally speaking, is the, the technical definition is, is that it's the end product of microbial digest digestion that can't be reduced anymore. Mm -hmm. I think that's a non-technical definition. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, when you analyze uh, chemically what humus looks like, it's a whole bunch of carbon jammed together with a bunch of minerals. Who knows what those minerals are, in what fractions, in what amounts, and so on and so forth. A lot of carbon, small amounts of minerals. People really like humus because it does provide ecosystem benefits to farms. There's no doubt about that. But how long, in what amounts, to what degree, in which crops, all these other things are debatable. And the reason I'm excited that you brought this up is because a lot of the assumptions that I've hear out there about humans are being disproven daily and in both positive and negative ways, right? So on the one hand, a lot there's a lot of generation of, of, of um, positive momentum around the benefits of applying humic acids and, um, you know, humic minerals, humic-based minerals or large, large carbon particle minerals in into, into agricultural systems. Totally agree. However, with caution, there's a good amount of research that has understood now that various mineral deposits of humix vary in mineral content, right? And so they have different mineral compositions. Those may or may not match what happens in the soil or what your soil needs. Taking this even one step further, um, there's some recent studies that have come out around carbon cycling, humus content, and the ability of soil microbes to degrade or not degrade long-term stable humus in the soil. And unfortunately, what we found is that, and we didn't find this here at Apical, this is coming from the greater scientific community at large, is that there is no 500 years carbon storage. Of, of soil carbon is that soil enzymes are actually capable of unlocking and releasing soil humus back to the soil environment under the right conditions. So mm -hmm. this makes sense, right? So certain types of enzymes do unlock various carbon molecules from soils. We know this for, and we have known this for a long time, but to understand that those actually unlock and release what was thought to be long-term stable 500 year humus um, is, is generally speaking, not correct, unfortunately. Um, and so there is maybe not a 500 year carbon plant. And so maybe, you know, and this is one of the things we do at Apical and really are very, um, concerned with in crop production is, yeah, let's not think about 500 years from now, right? Let's think about what these plants need today for carbon to be successful during this individual cropping season. And then maybe start to think three to five years out, right? 
farmers, they're not thinking five year, 500 years in advance, maybe three to five years on, on their enterprise budget. But generally speaking, we need, we need crop performance today, right? And so if we have indicators in the plant sap or in soil analysis that are saying your carbon is short, you need to apply carbon or you need to make carbon from a different fraction available, and we have data points to support that, that's really what, we, what gets us excited at Apical because we can then say, all right, well, here's, some, here's a soil fraction that we can then make available to this grower and save him money. Or here's another depletion, soil depletion that needs an addition of carbon that, that needs to be added. And then we find the appropriate source. You guys are focusing so much on carbon. Can you just give an example or two of what does this mean? Like, what's the best way? I'm sure it depends totally on the situation, but how do you most often recommend to growers to increase their carbon? What's the most effective way for them to, to practically do that once they have these analysis, this analysis from you? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> The simple way is, you know, to go back 20 years in time and hitch onto the bandwagon. I mean, organic has carbon baked into the system, right? And I, I, you know, I'm shameless plug because as you guys all know, I've been involved in organics for such a long time. Uh, but that said, diverse carbon sources are, is the name of the game. So yeah, humic acid, yes. Fulvic acid, yes. Biochar, yes. Crop residue, yes. Cover crops, yes. Uh, fish hydrolysate, yes. Fish oils, yes. Essential oils, yes. Uh, what else do I need to do? Soluble sugars, molasses, suka nut. I mean, the list just goes on. You know, prunings and branches. Carbon management is at the heart of nature's processes of growth and development of plants. This is key. When we forget this, we develop huge problems in agricultural systems. When we bring carbon back into these systems, we see them really flourish with nutrition. So in a nutshell, diverse carbon sources apply all nitrogen sources with carbon in one form or another, monitor carbon in the soil and through the indicators that you have available to you in the plant, and try to strive for maximum carbon availability at key growth phases for the plant. And just one other question about the testing that you do. What about all the other nutrients? I mean, we've talked so much about carbon here, but yeah. uh, you're, yeah, you're, yeah. you're testing for all the other nutrients as well. How does that all come together? Sure. Yeah, we can't necessarily just uh, you know throw out all soil testing and say, well, it all depends on carbon. And, and so this is a great point. Um, there's a tremendous amount of value in the nutrition that's available in soils, but it needs to be, like I mentioned a minute ago, selectively uptaken by plants. That's That changes the game, right? And so macronutrient availability, micronutrient availability, trace element availability, all vary on a soil analysis based on the extraction protocol. And so growers need to be educated that when they send a soil analysis to one lab or another, they're getting a different result. That may not match their goals. And I think I talked about this at the last uh, couple of acres events where about matching growers goals to their proper type of soil analysis. All these other minerals depend on that, right? Some are going to be made available by via temperature. Some are going to be made available via pressure. 
Some are going to be made available via diffusion from high, uh, high concentration to low concentration and so on and so forth. All that's moderated by carbon. But when you look at an individual soil analysis, if you're, say you're a grow, corn grower in Iowa and all you want to do is grow great corn, right? If you're only looking at year over year, one type of soil analysis and you're not getting the results that you want, whether it's you're spraying too much pesticides or your fertilizer costs are too much or whatever, you need to look at a different way of analyzing the soil because there's many, many different ways to look at a soil. It's not a, like I said at the beginning, a soil test is not a soil test. It's not a soil test. There's many different ways of taking a soil, pulling nutrients from it and analyzing those. Well, thanks, David. That's all we have time for today. Uh, and thank you to our audience for listening to this second episode, Soil Analysis, for our podcast series, Integrating Precision Analysis with Crop Input Applications. I want to remind you to stay tuned for episode three coming out next month on leaf sap analysis. It's going to be available in mid-August 2023. And David mentioned just a second ago that he has spoken at some Acres USA events, and he's also going to be speaking this August 23rd and 24th at our fifth annual Healthy Soil Summit in Monterey, California. So please go to events.acresusa.com to check that out and to hopefully sign up. So again, we want to thank our sponsor for this podcast, Apical Crop Science, a new paradigm of crop nutrition, delivering data-driven enterprise-grade solutions for improving regenerative agricultural systems. Learn more at apical-ag.com. That's apical-ag.com. For Track Time and Acres USA, I'm your host, Paul Meyer. Thank you.